listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Father, your Word tells us that you came to save the world. We're familiar with the scriptures that communicate to us about the invitation of salvation to all. But often I think sometimes we minimize that reality and or at least at times miss it in the sense that it comes through the lenses of individuals. You came to save me. And boy do I need rescue. And it wasn't just that I needed rescue the first time I placed my faith and trust in you, but I I need rescue now. And so God I pray for us as a congregation from those who've been at church from uh, the very beginning and those who are brand new. God, would you give us all eyes to see and ears to hear that we might attend and pay attention to the things you're doing in our hearts. We ask this all for your glory and in Christ's name. Amen. So June 23rd, 2018, a soccer team made up of 12 individuals and one coach made their way after soccer practice to a cave system called the Tamlong Caves. These are caves on the uh, end of Thailand, border of Myanmar, and they went as a way to celebrate a birthday of one of the members of their soccer team. They rode their bikes and enjoyed the process of what it meant to spend time together as a team. It was exciting for them. The sense of adventure was high. They got to go and explore all of these caves. It was a a place where tourists and individuals would go all the time. The weather was beautiful as they rode their bikes to these caves, as they dismounted. And as a team, all 13 of them made their way into these caves. They went with a sense of fun and joy, sarcasm, playfulness, and adventure. (laughs) They enjoyed their time together and they felt like there was a connection in just being a team. And there was a lot of fun in that. They were involved in sharing memories together and this was going to be a special moment, each of them were sure. Something that they could look back on as the time they went exploring in the Tom Long Caves together as a team with their coach. One of the things they didn't know, and nor should they have or would they have, but there was a storm brewing. Weather was making its way in, and in a way that would have been earlier than normal. You see, those caves would have closed during monsoon season. And the reason is, is because when the rain comes in on the mountain, it ends up flooding the cave. And so that which was one accessible is now inhibited to get through by uh, walking, and it's all water. They didn't realize that, and the storm made its way in quick and began to dispense and dump enormous amounts of water on this mountain while the boys were in the cave. Sure enough, they made their way further and further in the cave, and they realized that the water was coming in more rapidly than they could do anything about. Their only answer is to go deeper in the cave. What ended up happening is you had 13, individuals of the wild boar soccer team stuck, lost in a cave. Now they were together, which was a joy. They could encourage one another with morale. And when one was discouraged, another would bring encouragement and levity, levity. But there was no guarantee 
that they would be able to be rescued. The story was memorialized by Ron Howard in a movie that he scripted called 13 Lives. And it's the story of the Thai cave rescue. One of the most heroic rescue operations that we've seen in decades. Hundreds of individuals from an international effort made their way to rescue these 13 boys. 12 younger students and one coach. And in the process of all of those things, the individuals, the boys, the wild boars were in this cave, in this small sandy beach, surrounded by water, no able, not able to go anywhere else, virtually stuck, lost and unable to rescue themselves, and no contact and communication with the outside. They were unsure of many things. Would they make it out? Was anybody really looking for them? Those who might be looking for them, would they have the ability to get to them? And if so, and they were able to get to them, would they be able to get each of those boys out? More questions than answers. The wild boars sat and waited. No food. They were able to drink from some of the water dripping off the cave walls and were able to stay nourished. But for nine days, there was nobody else in the cave that they knew of besides the wild boars. They talked, they slept, they dug, they tried to figure out answers, but they were there, stuck. Nine days in, few rescue divers had made their way to the end of the guideline, 2.4 miles into the heart of the mountain. Stuck, they found themselves finding this area of opening at the end of the guideline that the divers had set and they popped their heads up and to their surprise what do they see 13 boys there so yet now finally there was an awareness that a rescuer or rescuers had made their way in and offered new and renewed hope the question still surfaced for them would the rescuers have the ability to get them out. The answers were uncertain. They knew that they found the boys and they found their boys alive, which is a huge consolation to the families and the loved ones that were watching this unfold and even to a world that was watching this take place. They were hopeful and prayerful that these 13 lives would be saved. But there was no guarantee. Sure enough, they mounted an enormous rescue effort in trying to figure out what they could do. The unique part is these boys had no capability to help themselves. Most of them couldn't swim. So what do you do? Do you drill from the top of the mountain and pull them out? Or do you somehow figure out a way to teach boys who can't swim how to scuba dive? That's a Herculean task at best. In the process of these things, the questions that surfaced for these young boys were, what could they do and could they trust their rescuers that they, the rescuers had their best ability and knowledge to do what needed to be done to be able to be rescued one at a time by the divers that were there? The only way to know would be to trust. <laughs> it's a very little option but the rescuers were concerned as well because when kids, boys, or any individual gets afraid, what do they do? <laughs> they start to try and control their situation. 
So the nervousness of leading boy after boy in 2.4 miles of a delicate, fragile cave rescue. One boy that decides to get afraid of being in the situation that he's in and starts to to flail. Got it. See, it just takes me time. There would be no way to stop the situation and it could put everybody's life, at least the diver and this young boy, at risk. What did they do? Story tells us that they sedated the boys. They allowed them the ability to be sedated in the process. And the only way that they could be rescued is if they had no control over their own rescue. They barely even knew that it was ultimately happening until they were on the other side of the cave. What does that tell you about rescue? seems an interesting way to encounter the Christmas story of God with us, the idea of Emmanuel. And yet anybody who has been rescued would share the same things that the wild boars would share with us now. Rescue involves numerous things, not the least of which is being aware that we're lost. Number two, aware that we can't help ourselves. We don't have the ability to fix our situation. That We can't accommodate or make the circumstances as such that we could actually be able to rescue ourselves from the dilemma that we've got ourselves in. But most importantly, as we encounter the story of understanding Jesus as Emmanuel, is that we actually have to trust the ability of the rescuer. And often, when we look at the circumstances of life, I think sometimes that's harder than we'd like to admit. There are challenges where we hear this wonderful story. Matthew 1.23 tells us as it's a, uh, a scripture from Isaiah 7. And it tells us the, the reality of who Jesus is going to be. And, and here's what it says. He says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And certainly that brings us some level of comfort. Certainly, just as though after nine days of being alone, realizing that the wild boars had no ability to fix or change their situation, they had to hope from something from outside, and they were hoping that an entire international effort was being mounted because their lives mattered. They were hopeful in that. But the presence of the rescuer was not enough. It wasn't as though these divers showed up and saw them and said, okay, Everything's great. No, they still had to be rescued. See, the presence of Christ, the reality of God with us is not just that God is existing in the world and that his presence is walking alongside of us per se. It's not as though we've attached the truth of who Jesus is to the story we're writing. The reality is, is what the the purpose of Jesus showing up as Emmanuel, God with us, is that we're invited to allow him to write his story over our lives. You see the difference? There's something more significant in coming to the conclusion of both not only why we need to be rescued, but trusting the ability and capability of the rescuer. You see, Jesus was sent as Emmanuel. And why was he sent? He was sent to save. The Bible is abundantly clear that the purpose of Jesus being sent by the Father into the world to incarnate or take on human flesh, even Hebrews tells us that he is able to sympathize with our weakness. The reason for all of those things was because humanity 
was lost. They were broken. They were in a place where they could not help or rescue themselves. They were stuck with no ability. They had people around them maybe for moral support to try and just get through life and can share levity and encouragement and fun with one another. But no matter what, they couldn't trust the people around them to save even them because no one can save themselves. You see, the point of the fact that there's a Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, is not just so that we can attach God to our story, but so that we can come to the recognition that the only way that our story fully has substance is when it's found in trusting the rescuer. It's his story, the one that he is writing. That It's not just an international effort of people trying to rescue wild boars and, and, and 13 soccer kids. It's, an, it's a cosmic rescue effort where the entire resources of heaven are dispensed for your salvation and for mine, for our rescue. So the question really that surfaces as we look at this understanding of Jesus as Emmanuel is, why? What's the ultimate purpose of our rescue. I'd like to suggest to you this morning, and probably the two of the most atypical Christmas passages, that God gives us as sending Jesus, as Emmanuel, God with us, provides at least at a bare minimum two very important things. I think one The reason for God to send the Son, the reason for the Father to send the Son as Emmanuel, God, with us, is to reassure us of our value. And I think the second is to remind us of our purpose. If you look with me in Galatians chapter 2, we get this unfolding as Paul explains the heart of the gospel. He begins to lay out for us the substance and significance of what it means to be united or in relationship with Christ. What it really means is how do we understand Jesus as rescuer? What limitations have we placed on fully surrendering our lives to Christ and allowing him to be that which not only has rescued us once, but consistently and regularly rescues us from ourselves? Because that's the danger, right? Sin always makes things messy. But as we're being rescued, here's the real challenge. That we can start to flail and get fearful. Anxiety can intrude into our lives in such a way that we start to grapple and grab for other things. Hoping that somehow in some way we can control the circumstances. And often we forget that we need to trust the rescuer. We need to trust that there's a work that he is doing in us and on our behalf and ultimately for his glory that has something beyond what we can see in mind. And it's his ability, his cosmic capability that absolutely transforms our life and renews our hope. I do believe Christmas is a season of hope. But I also believe that the reason why we can have hope is because we understand our need for rescue. That there's a knowledge and an ability and a a desire to understand that we can't fix our lives or manage our sin. We need something outside of us that cares enough about us to involve himself in our lives in such a way that we understand the significance of our value before the God of the universe. 
Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 17. And this is how Paul unfolds it with the church in Galatia. He's struggling with numerous things, not the least of which some challenges and frictions within the church. And here's what he says. But if in our endeavor to be justified, and justified means to be made right with God. This is a relational term that's giving us an understanding that God has pardoned our sin because of the death of Jesus on the cross. We've taken his righteousness, he's taken our sin, and now we are made in right relationship with God. So to be justified means to be in right relationship with God. But if our endeavor is to be justified or made right with God in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. The question is, is then Christ a servant of sin? He said, certainly not. It's not as though God is contributing to the sin. He's rescuing us from it. For if I rebuild what was torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. (laughs) If I try and do it on my own, I only make things worse, essentially. And so verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. Here's what he says in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now, uh, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's telling us is there's a sense in which this enormous cosmic rescue operation has been planned, prepared for, and perfectly executed by the God of the universe. Knew what needed to be done. God is not scrambling to figure out how to deal with human sin. He's not trying to figure out what to do with the mess that you and I have made of our lives. (laughs) He's not sitting there wondering, oh no, I can't believe Charlie screwed it up again. Now what am I gonna do? There's an analysis and awareness that is is what Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. And then what happens is I, I no longer live. Well, then where does life exist? Well, it's Christ who lives in me, who died and gave himself up for me. In the life I live now, I live by faith. I live in trusting that every day in the thousands of little moments of life, my rescuer knows what I need. It's not as though I need to figure out how to fix the dilemma that I've gotten myself into or try not to get myself in the next dilemma. It's that I need to depend with utter and absolute surrender that my rescuer knows what I need. And in relationship with him, the sufficiency of the rescue of Jesus Christ is more than enough. The resources, the cosmic resources of the Father have been dispensed to bring me into a relationship with him, to save me from the predicament that I got myself into by either dumb decisions I've made or just circumstances that have surrounded me. Paul David Tripp says it this way when he's describing and defining a worshiper. He says, a worshiper is first an identity before it's ever an activity. And I think he's right. He's telling us is that there's this sense in which how we surrender to God in the thousands of little moments of life is becoming increasingly aware of our need to be rescued. Not just once, but daily. The regularity of our thoughts and minds that go to trying to fix our situation. God is not with us to attach himself to our lives. And so that we can have him be a part of accomplishing the narrative and the desires of what we want to have happen. We're attaching ourselves. He's drawing us to his life. He's writing the story. 
God with us means that he's drawing us into this grand narrative of the work that he's doing to draw us to himself and accomplish things that are so much greater and so much bigger than we could ever imagine. Those of us who placed our faith in Jesus Christ are placing our faith in God as rescuer. You are fixing, changing, transforming, and identifying myself with the mission and the work of God. I think one of the most core components of realizing Jesus is Emmanuel is that understanding God with us reassures us of our value. There are a thousand little moments of life where I feel insignificant and like a failure. (laughs) I feel like my value rises and falls based on another person's perspective of me or whether or not I look back on my own life and accomplish what I hope to accomplish. And I see numerous flags that I've planted in my life of those moments where I just haven't measured up. Done things I wish I hadn't done. Said things I wish I hadn't said. And yet in the context of all of that, when I am reminded of Galatians 2, specifically verse 20, I'm reminded with utter regularity that when God says he's with us, it means that I have value beyond what I do. Does that sit on you in any certain way? <laughs> so often I think as we think about this Christmas story and God with us, there's a, there's a sense in which our minds default to transaction. God loves me because of what I've done. He's mad at me because of what I've done. If I do better, he'll love me more. If I do worse, he'll be more disappointed in me. Can I just tell you this morning that that's not the gospel? The gospel isn't dependent on your work. It's dependent on his And let me tell you something. What he said on the cross was it was finished. His work is done. He's completed that which he had planned to do so that you and I have access to intimacy with the God of the universe. God with us means that God is in us and he's writing things beyond what we could ever expect. It communicates to me that there's an innate value that exists because in the sovereign, providential, creative ability of God, the God of the universe, somehow in some way, He's designed and desired to fashion and form me. I'm an aspect of his creation. I bear the image of God, and so do you. And in bearing the image of God, I realize that there is a sense in which that image has been marred by sin and distorted by my own dumb decisions. But being rescued by Jesus, as God with us, reminds me of my value. It reassures me that I matter And that the significance that I have is in union with Christ, not in the transactions of this world. That I matter because God tells me that I matter. That there's a value that exists in all of those things. And that value is given to me by my creator. I think the understanding of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus' entrance into the world to take on human flesh... And like I said, even Hebrews tells us to sympathize with our weakness for he's been tempted in every way that we have yet without sin. Man, if we sat on that text, we could sit there for a year and not mind the depth of what that really means. Tempted in every way? You're kidding me, right? That there were temptations to take up your own self-reliance, your own desire, that there was sin at the cusp of all of those moments of his life, that he was tempted in every way and yet without sin? It's amazing to even consider that he knows how you feel when you are about to find yourself moving to your own desires for self-reliance and doing what you want to do. You have an advocate who knows what it's like. 
and tells you, you matter more than your sin would tell you you do. That's awesome. I mean, this is a Christmas story right here. God with us is not just this sort of ambient comfort smelly candle spice stuff where it's just like oh that's so great kumbaya it's it's significant life transformative reality of what god is communicating about you matter so much for the father to send the son on a cosmic rescue mission so that you wouldn't be left and i wouldn't be left in my sin awesome like that that's amazing stuff and so when i think about the christmas story i've got to think about the need for the christmas story and that need is i need to be rescued and i have been rescued and i've been invited to come and see into a relationship with the god of the universe through what trusting the rescuer placing my faith and trust and surrendering my life to him it is no longer i who lives as paul says but christ who lives in me I'm in a unique season of life right now, teenage kids, but I'd like to call this season of life PTDE, Parent Taught Driver Education. <laughs> it's life-changing. Like, let me tell you, I did it once before, and I thought, okay, I got this, and now I'm doing it again, and I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, it's just starting off trying to teach my youngest how to drive, and, and then I, what, what, what ends up happening is I realize maybe I'm not as good of a driver as I think I am. Because I'm, you know, like you're walking through all of these things about, okay, you need to stop here and you need to make sure you turn on your blinker here. So here's what I'm learning in the season of PTDE is that in the process of allowing or hoping or helping my daughter to be successful in driving on the road, I've got to give her really good instructions. And I need to give her those instructions in enough time where she can make the right decisions. So I can't just say, stop, and have it be a good thing. She's already stressed, right? <laughs> Especially your dad. And I don't have a break on my side. So, oh man, it is crazy. Parent taught driver education. It is, well, it's sanctifying. Let me just say that. <laughs> so in the process of that, like I have to tell her and give her directions on which way she needs to go. I need you to turn left here, but I need to make sure that she has plenty of time to turn on her blinker and make her way to stopping at the stop sign and turning the way she needs to, or go go straight here. I have to make sure that there's a a pattern and a path for instructions so that as I know uh, that I set her up to be successful, that she knows what to do in plenty enough time to do it. (laughs) P-T-D-E. Season of life. I'm in. But I think that it's very similar in the context of our journeys with Jesus. I think often as we walk through life and we're reassured of our value, we realize that God is with us and that our lives are in him, that he's doing things beyond what we can imagine. He's working in and through us. There is an element of hope and trust that's built. But I still think that there's part of us that wonders, what do I need to do? Like, what am I supposed, what, what direction am I going? How am I aware and prepared as much as I can be for the things around me so that I encounter things that I was unprepared for? I know what to do because of the relationship that I have with the rescuer. Colossians, if you will, chapter three. Colossians three begins to communicate to us the significance of, of what God has told us, if you will, in terms of trajectory. 
And it's not a list of rules and regulations, do this and do, because then that defaults to transaction. It really is about an understanding and a knowledge of where I need to look when I encounter the most unprecedented, unpredictable things in life, which all of us will encounter. You would have never anticipated as you look back on your testimony, the thousands of little things that happened or didn't happen. I imagine if once we get to heaven and we have this intimate experience with with Christ that's free from sin, there'll be this level of awareness of the thousands of little things God protected us from that we are not even aware of at this point. But we are aware of the thousands of little things that we find ourselves wrestling with trusting God with. Colossians 3, I think, is the... It's not really the parent-taught driver education, but it is, here's the path. Like, here's, here's how we begin to understand what it means to live the life that God has called us to live. Or, if I will say it this way, to allow the life that Christ has and is living inside of me. Because, again, Galatians said, I no longer live, but it's Christ that lives within me. How do I focus on the work of Christ in my life? Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not the things on the earth. For you have died, and listen to this, and and circle it if you will, but for you have died, and your life is hidden with God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I love this image because the image that the New Testament gives us of this word hidden, your life is hidden with God in Christ. So there's a a sense that your life is through faith in Jesus Christ shielded from the realities and the totality of the impact of the world upon us. Here's what I mean. You and I have lived life and there's a lot of things that have been Happening and happen to us that we cannot have anticipated or predicted. Often our heart defaults to, I wonder if I've did something wrong and God is punishing me. I wonder why this got through. If my life is hidden with God in Christ, how could this happen? And maybe we haven't asked it that way, but we felt that same sentiment. I don't understand if God is loving, good, and kind how these things could be happening. Right? If my life is hidden with God in Christ, how did he allow these things through? And here's what Paul is, I think, moving us towards. is not just that we have been re- reassured of our value, but we're reminded of our purpose. And here's the purpose that he's giving us in those things. That your life is united with Christ. And because of that union, that relationship, that substance and significance, your life is not only given value, but trajectory, d- direction. And that direction is... Seek the things of God, not the things of the earth, that we allow our understanding to not be determined by the things that the world tells us or even the feelings we feel inside. Not that they're real, but they're just not the reliable indication of what's actually going on inside of our hearts. And so because of that, we're seeking the things above. I know God is good. I understand his provision. I know his plan. He is with me. Emmanuel, God with us, means that not only do I have value, but I have purpose. And my purpose has been defined by the creator of the universe, not by this earthly world that would seek to destroy the very fabric of who I am as an individual. The significance of knowing God with us means that we understand not only just our value, but our our purpose. To seek the things above, not the things of the earth, means that, that 
Everything that gets through, everything that happens to us that feels tragic or traumatizing, God is saved, God is overcome, God is continuing to work in, and that he is our identity, not the trauma that we've experienced. Let me tell you, that's a journey. We can say that and believe that and have faith that that's what God is doing, but there are moments it is really hard to convince ourselves that that's true. And yet, the story is not one that we're writing. It's one that God's writing. And if we know the outcome... And we know the work that God is doing and his power and strength that he has the capability. Then what I would want you to do this morning above all else is to trust the rescuer. That in the thousands little moments of life where your feelings would seek to consume your thoughts about God. Do what Paul communicates. Seek the things above. Realize that there's a war that's being waged. And that war is waged by an evil one that does very specific things. He kills, he devours, and destroys. His two main enemies are to accuse. His two main tactics are to accuse and deceive. You and I have chronically and consistently been lied to. And then in the process of those things, those lies come in the form of being accused of a thousand different things and forgetting that we stand as rescued people. And that as we turn our hearts over and surrender again, it's not the life I live, but the, 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 the Christ that lives within me. I come to the realization that ultimately at the end of the day, when we say come and see, what we're saying is come and trust. Your rescuer has deemed you valuable and reassures you that you have a purpose. You are not defined by past, previous, or current sin. You are not defined by the sin done to you or the sin done against you. But yet, the world would want to rob us of the joy and the intimacy that we have with Jesus because it wants to tell us all of those things. And yet our confession this morning, Emmanuel, God with us, rescuer of our souls, that which has the ability, capability, and the resources to actually save, trust the rescuer. Would you pray with me?